0: everybody, today's show, episode 109, is gonna be talking about the difference between labor, talent, and skill shortages. You've probably heard about a labor shortage, or a skill shortage, or a talent shortage, and maybe you thought, well, they mean the same thing. Well, news is, they don't. Even prior to the pandemic and the great resignation, or whatever phrase you want to give, the kind of craziness we had in 2021, All industries have been acutely aware of the ever-growing shortages in what they may have termed labor, talent, and or skills. And whilst, as I said, they're often used interchangeably out in the wild of the media, of HR, of talent, there is actually a significant difference between the three, both in terms of definitions and how organizations need to approach, remedy, um, and look after these shortages. So today's guest, as I said on episode 109, is going to be uh, helping us dive into this topic. I'm really pleased, because we've been waiting quite a few months to try and get the scheduling right, to welcome Kevin Green. And Kevin is the uh, is an author, but he's also the Chief People Officer at First Bus. And he's going to be basically kind of giving us insight, because Kevin, for those of you who know Kevin, um, he's an expert in HR and recruitment. he will hate that I use that word, expert, but he is, right? Let's be honest here, and it's uh, it's evident by the recent appointment he uh, he was made to to first post, and I'll tell you all about that himself. But we'll be chatting about um, his insight from many areas, both as a practitioner in a people role, but also an advisor to a whole industry and, and someone who dealt with government on this issue in the UK. And we'll be digging into those differences. Kevin, you're very welcome to the show. It's wonderful to finally have have you. We had to get through 108 other people before we got to you, Kevin. <laughs> Yeah, i delighted,
1: delighted to be here Johnny, delighted to be here and I'm looking forward
0: to the conversation. Well great to have you and I wonder if you could open up by perhaps telling us a little about you, your own background, um, how you got to where you are today, some of the highlights along the way and perhaps introduce to our audience who First Bus is and what some of the challenges of your organisation are today.
1: Yeah I suppose the best way of describing myself is I'm sort of a business person stroke HR professional. I've had uh Lots of big HR jobs in my career, including Walmart, which is the big postal operator in the UK. I did that for five years early in the 2000s. I then did 10 years as the chief exec of the Recruitment and Employment Confederation, which is the professional body for the recruitment industry, where I ended up spending a lot of time looking at data and talking about big trends, to government, uh, about legislation, but also representing the recruitment industry that even then were struggling with some of these issues that we're going to be talking about today. then sort of decided I was going to go plural, 2018, uh, sort of was advisor to six or seven fast growth, medium sized businesses, uh, wrote my book, Competitive People Strategy, which was uh, shortlisted for business book of the year in 2020, which was great. Uh, and I did a lot of sort of public talking and all of that sort of thing, you know, presenting or whatever. And I enjoyed that. Did the odd consultancy project and I ended up doing an interim uh, HR director or chief people officer job here and and decided to, to stay. I, you know, I tried it and they were keen to have me and I was keen to, to go back and do another big change and turnaround job. So this is a £850 million business. It's part of a FTSE 250 uh, listed group. Um, and we just about uh, six months ago, we divested of some of the businesses in uh, the state. So First Transit, First Student and Greyhound. Uh, so uh, the bus business is now sort of engine of growth, you know, because of the environmental uh, agenda. We're going to go net zero by uh, 2035. It's a legacy business where we are having to change at pace to do with the changing requirements, modal shift, getting people out of cars onto public transport. And what that means is we need to be a modern organization, digitally enabled, you know, getting people to experience a bus and use it for leisure or for work or getting to university school. So I, I just I fell in love with the business, really, because it's real people doing real jobs every day. And, and it's about change and, and, and restructuring the business. We've got a couple of acquisitions uh, currently uh, in on. on uh, that we're going through, which is, you know, one of them is predominantly about a skill play. So we might talk a bit about that later. So hopefully that's enough for you, uh, Johnny, about me. And um, I, I suppose I've been rummaging around in, you know, not just the UK labour market, but the global labour market for the last 15, 20 years. And I think this is a subject that's close to
0: my heart and I'm keen to explore it with your, uh, your listeners. Before we get into the main topic, can you give me some numbers in terms of, number of employees in the business, number of hires you typically make, and just rough split of uh, where those skills are between, let's say, so, yeah. uh, non-technical, technical jobs, managerial jobs.
1: So I suppose it's about 14,000 people, about 14,500. You've got about eight and a half, nine thousand 9,000 bus drivers, where our turnover uh, pre-pandemic was 23%. We then had a great resignation spike, went up to 38%. So the cost of me hiring bus drivers increased by 20 million. So what, 20 million off the bottom line, um, and it costs us seven and a half thousand pounds, about eight and a half thousand dollars, to be able to bring uh, you know a bus driver into our business. So that's one audience. Second audience is engineers, about uh, one and a half, two thousand of them. Huge skill shortage area because we're looking at mechanical engineering, but I'm also looking at hybrid engineering so as we get rid of combustion engines and we're running diesel buses how do we start to think about the qualifications and skills for people where we're looking at electric or hydrogen we've got hydrogen up in aberdeen we've got about 500 electric buses and so that's a big transformation for us and clearly a skills issue and then like any other organization we've got marketeers you know professional uh, capabilities and clearly technology is important to us so you've got about uh, 3,000 of 3,500, 4,000 people that are, you know, in that sphere, professional, uh, um, you know, professionals with professional qualifications. But the talent agenda is big when you're going through change and you're trying to
0: move that pace. I remind our audience uh, that are listening perhaps to the podcast that we also broadcast live. Those of you listening live, we very welcome your comments and questions. You can join in on YouTube or LinkedIn with your questions for Kevin. And this is, covering so many different areas of skills and professions and backgrounds. I think there's probably a question in there for everyone. So let me dig into the main topic. What is the difference between labour, talent and skill shortages, Kevin?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think you're absolutely right, Johnny, in your introduction. People just use, you know, if you look at the media, they'll just talk about skill shortages or labour shortages. And in reality, you're absolutely spot on. They are different. So for me, a labour shortage is... It's where you're looking to hire people that don't need to have any previous experience or any qualification to do the job. So if you think of hospitality, you think of uh, delivery drivers, agriculture, uh, some manufacturing jobs, uh, bus drivers, what you're really doing is saying, what I need to do is to fire someone that's prepared to work for us, do the hours for the pay that's on offer. And what we can do is we can train them. So um, the example I always use is coffee shop barista. Now, if there's anyone from Starbucks or Nero's, they might disagree with what I'm just about to say. But, hey, you know, I reckon you can train someone to be a really competent coffee shop barista within a week. Four things they need to know. They need to be able to make a great cup of coffee, a cappuccino, a latte. They need to be able to take payment. They need to be able to understand the products in the glass cabinet uh, and sell those. And they also need to be nice to the customer. Right. I can teach you that in two days. You know, I can show you, you can practice, I can give you feedback. You're sort of competent by the end of week one. By the end of week two, you could be our best performing barista. That's a labor shortage. That's where you basically take someone. It's, you know, uh, $20 an hour. That's the job. I'll train you. You turn up every day. If the right attitude and deploy the skills that I've trained, I'm addressing my labor market. Now, the challenge that we have with labour markets is, and I will use some data from the UK, but this is a global phenomenon. You know, we are at full employment. We have more vacancies, 1.3 million vacancies than we have unemployed people. So what you have is employers all searching for people to do their jobs. And what that drives is salary inflation, because the first thing we do is we offer more money to hire people uh, and to retain the ones we've got. And what you get into is that vicious circle in terms of salary inflation. Now, there are some other things that I'm keen to talk about that I think people need to be doing, but let's get move on to skills shortages. Skills shortages is a very clear definition, it's where um, there are not enough people with the right skills and experience or qualifications um, to do the jobs available in the labor market. And in the UK, and certainly in most parts of sort of the developed world, during the sort of 80s, 90s, right the way through the 2000s. And when I was at the REC, there were four or five key areas. So technology, data scientists, software engineers, you you had digital, digital marketeers, you had engineers. um, You had those sort of four or five areas where and enough to craft skills within uh, construction, where there just isn't enough people with the right qualifications and skills to do the jobs available. So you know, the play there is clearly about growing your own, but not just growing your own. So how you know, do you hire people? How do you train them? How do you invest in qualifications? but how do you create the right culture so they stick to your organization? because other people will always be trying to attract them with a better proposition and, and, and increased pay. And then thirdly, and, and perhaps the area that more, many of more of your listeners are uh, struggling with is talent. So I think of talent as skill plus. So if you're hiring a financial controller, you know, we want them to be professionally qualified. We want them to have 15 years experience, worked in a different organisation, to be numerous, you know, to be quite good, understand the difference between a P&L and a balance sheet and a cash flow and be able to give you some insight and look at data. That's the skill. Right. But in reality, in our organisations today, we want our professionals to do more than that. We want them to think strategically. Big picture, not ivory tower. They want to be able to roll up their sleeves and make stuff happen. We want them to understand trends, what's going on in markets, to have insight. Secondly, we need them to be change-orientated. They're always, you know, are they someone that thrives on ambiguity? Are they looking to continuously improve the organisation? Are they looking for, you know, to, to think about what the next idea is, how we can improve what we do, the offering to the customer, how we do things internally? you know, And in finance, it might be, you know, I don't know, how do we do this differently? How do we use technology to become more efficient? It might be how do we provide more data to their business so they make better decisions? So, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a significant part in there about um, change orientation. And then thirdly, you know, I need people that can inspire, motivate and engage other people. So if I go, I'm really looking for a brilliant financial control. These are the skills I want but I want talent, someone that adds value, that helps me grow and develop the business. And that's the definition. I, and it's based on some research from Gallup that they did sort of 15 years ago. I used it at Raw Mail uh, and I've used it in, in, in First Bus as a, as a shorthand to talk about what we mean when we talk about talent. Because when I talk to, to other HR professionals about talent and you ask that tough question, so what is your talent shortage? Quite often you get a technical skill or you might get a leadership development or high potentials. Now, fine, they're things that you need to focus on. But I think you need to think a bit harder and deeper about, you know, the talent that's critical for your organisation to make it successful. Uh, And so for me, as part of any HR strategy, when you have those shortages in the labour market, you need to be innovative and creative and come up with new answers in terms of how do you address them. Now, in my organisation, I've got all three at play at once. Some organisations may be weighted more towards skill or talent or, or labour. But in my organisation where I am now, we've got all three at play. And, and that creates,
0: you know, some 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 challenges. Kevin, I want to try and address the three areas individually, because, as you say, uniquely perhaps they... You have all ch- your challenges in all three areas. I want to hear about um First Puzzle's challenges, what you're seeing, what works, what, you, what you're seeing in the market, what the reality is in the UK, the US, or other markets. Let's start with that labor shortage. And in doing so, maybe we'll jump into an article from Insider. And for the backstage team, I'm going to jump to our second <laughs> news story first, if you don't mind. Um, and it's, it's to do with this labor definition you put forward, which I really like. Yeah. And Insider Magazine, in an article by Grace Dean, um, last month published this story about uh, the Accor hotel chain. And it was uh, headlined, Europe's top hotel chain is hiring workers without experience or even resumes because it's so desperate for staff. And for those of you not familiar with the Accor brand, they own Ibis and many other brands you're probably much more familiar with. I think they something have a quarter of a million employees around the world. And the short version of this, as I read it, Kevin, I'll get your opinion in a second, is that the CEO has come out and said, listen, we haven't perhaps invested in our staff in the past. We haven't paid them enough. It's a wake-up call for the industry. We're having to increase their their their, their, their salaries, their uh, their wage. I think it's got up to 25% in over a year, or just under a year. Um, we're going to have to give them more benefits, more flexi time, etc. Because I think one example that the article cites was that they were having to leave two floors of every hotel empty. They were having to send people away early after breakfast or dinner when they could have perhaps made more money out of them. They didn't have the staff. And in this example, they are literally just hiring bodies to do the job and they need more bodies in their hotels. Talk to me about um, labor shortages, this example, your own experience, what people are doing. Because as you mentioned, if you have a situation, for example, in the US, I believe, for every uh, uh, for every person available to do a job, who's not doing a job today. There's something like 1.6 or 1.8 vacancies as of data published two days ago. And the UK is something similar, right? There literally there aren't enough people for the, the jobs in this labor market to your definition. Talk to me about this example. Is it, what do you think is working in this example? What are the alternatives to this? How do you fix the fundamental problem of there's not enough people and what are you doing?
1: Yeah, I I mean, there's a a couple of starting points, isn't there? One of them is, first of all, you've most probably got a retention issue. So before you start going into the attraction of how do I bring new people to the organisation, look at the people that are currently employed, you know, do some segmentation, really understand them, do some focus groups, do surveys, really get underneath what is driving them to leave your organisation. And... And for me, if I'm being honest, I think we, you know, here at First Bus, I think we neglected our workforce for about five or six years. We could look at pay and I can see a road over time against the competitors, but against other markets. So we hadn't uh, kept pace with what was going on in terms of pay. Um, We have a very high ratio of uh, supervisors and managers to, to frontline staff of over 50. So, you know, when we looked at the survey, some of the data was people feel unappreciated. They don't get talked to. The people who are doing a good job aren't aren't engaged. Um, You know, we did some changes during COVID about um, shift patterns and things, which, you know, we did because we needed to survive. And, you know, we were going through a, a really tough time and we did that at pace. And really, again, the human consequences of how people organize their life. So. There were some things that we needed to respond to. So, you know, what we've been doing is, you know, you know being very clear about our purpose, articulating our values, developing our managers. And we're driving a program uh, depot by depot called People Centricity, where we we put some things in place, which is we change the manager's role. We give them some skills and training. Uh, we do uh, engagement surveys every quarter now across the whole workforce and we've, you know, we've done stuff on pay, we've done stuff on benefits, but it's about that loop. It's about showing you care, giving feedback. You know, we've done things like giving everyone free tea and coffee, we're doing a cycle of work thing. So lots of things which are about benefits and, and stuff, because you know that um, pay on its own won't work, right? We know that it's it's the human factors which people make a, a, a judgment on. There's a great McKinsey article about the Great Resignation, which talks about. What are the key priorities? And and culture is ten times more likely to drive someone to leave your organisation than pay. Now, what often gets happened on in- exit interviews is people go, well, I'm going to this job because they pay more. I don't go into because my bosses are very good and no one's taught to me and I haven't had any development. So what I think you have to do is do first of all, start on that retention bit, and then I think there's a huge, you know, a huge um, amount for you to think about about how do you go and attract people. So. We're looking, so for us, you know, quite a traditional, predominantly male, uh, full-time job, you know. So we've had to deconstruct some of our jobs. We're starting to think about how do we create more part-time and flexible. So we tap into different parts of the labour market. So when we're attracting, we don't just play back images of white middle-aged men, we're playing back, you know, uh, women with children. We're playing back so we've and we're working really hard on the cultural stuff so that. You know, we can then when we go out and and talk about our brand promise or our EVP, that we've got the ability to deliver that and some confidence that we can now deliver that going forward. So, you know, you've got to think about that candidate experience. You know, our recruitment processes, we went into, you know, when we were at 38 percent turnover, which means that, you know, I'm recruiting uh, uh, hundreds, if not thousands of people each month. You know, what we were trying to do was to get faster and faster. And, and what we did, and we made some mistakes, is we took out some of the quality checks, we took out some of the, the stuff at the beginning of the process, and we got very, very silly. So we got a bit foolish, and we were being incredibly busy, but there were people dropping out. So we, we made the process too long, it was too onerous, and we didn't do any filtering. We didn't. So we've had to reinvent the whole recruitment process as well, so that the candidate experience is great. And you know, people have got bits of video they can pop on. They can ask little questions. You know, so loads of things just to make it uh, enjoyable. We've also got managers to talk directly to, 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 to people and done open days and all sorts of things. So some modern stuff, but we also done some old school. You know, we put posters up outside of all of our depots and we've done more stuff in the local community and all of that. So, you know, it's a, a blended approach to attract more people. Think about the jobs. Think about the benefits. What are they interested in? obviously deliver it but you've got to be trying to retain people as well as bring people in so you know it's a it's a it's a big job in an organization where you've got high turnover uh, where you're trying to find people which everybody's trying to find. you know i'm competing against tescos so i'm competing against hotel chains and coffee shops and um manufacturers and in every labor market so one of the things we've started to do is do a bit of talent not it's not talent intelligent but labor market intelligence so in this market, I don't know, in Glasgow, where our depot is, well, who are we competing against at that price point, you know, and how do we differentiate our offering? So one of the things you've got to think about is if you're competing in a labor short market, you've got to have a good offering, but you've also got to know who you're competing against, so how you can differentiate yourselves
0: and make it more appealing and more exciting. Is there is there room for, I'm sure you'll say yes, but I'm interested to know perhaps how much room there is for, Innovation and technology to replace people because if you look again to the yeah. why, and maybe not necessarily in First Bus only, but if you look at again, the, the labor data says there aren't enough people. So even if First Bus is successful at retaining more people and attracting more more uh, qualified individuals or interested individuals, it's, it's at somebody else's expense. And I remember back to the old days of the bus, there was a bus conductor or two driver with more staff involved. I in mean, so, so I mean, we.
1: yeah i mean for us long term i mean let's be honest that the bus driving um professional career you know we are already trialing autonomous vehicles we've got some stuff some experiments with them some universities out in in sort of the west of england which um you know it works you know you can do it you know look at how great a tesla is you know you can control the vehicle without someone having to drive so you know long term that's most probably one but you know, in terms of automation, if you think about one of my sister businesses, is a, the, the we've got four sort of train operating companies. You know, we're in the process of taking away all the staff in. Um, um how I call it in the stations that sell tickets because we can do all of that automated why do I've got 20,000 people working because we can automate that now what I've got then is I've got 20,000 people that I can reskill and t- turn into other things so people on platforms or they might help us with uh, bus drivers so yeah absolutely technology and the whole AI stuff and where you can digitalize and automate um you should do that if it provides additional value to customers but it also means that you might get flex in terms of being able to take people and retrain them and and get them into
0: the areas where you've got the shortages because you don't need them doing the tasks that they used to do let's talk about that skilling piece and i go to the, the next article i want to discuss which comes from the bbc uh, and it highlights again uh, it's a uk specific article but i think it could be any country in the world today uh, and it's uh, by shiona uh, mccallum and it says, UK tech talent shortage threatens to stifle growth in the industry. And this article particularly points to the fact that there were more than 2 million UK job vacancies in tech alone last year, uh, which is more than any other labor area. Again, they're confusing the word labor with other areas here, but it's the problem we talk about. And, and that there's literally this lack of digital skills, and then there's this lack of specific more yeah, advanced yeah. technical skills. Now, this article poses that, it, you know, there's a dilemma because tech jobs in the uk and i expect everywhere else pay on average double um the amount of a non-tech or average um earner in the market so it's not not lack of incentive for someone to do this but what's happening what's what is causing this um this lack of skills if we take the second moving from, from labor to skill shortage um, well, and then what are you doing and what do you think is being done in the wider market that's working to tackle this
1: so you just have to get back to the starting point. One of the great problems is we've never really married up education to the labour market. And the linkage between those has always been quite fraught in most developed economies, certainly US, certainly the UK and most European countries. The, you know, we're training people and doing great things in, you know, degrees, but people then not really having the skills to make them particularly attractive in the labour market. So... What's always happened is employers have had to take up the slack. You know, you have to put in the job specific training uh, uh, early in people's careers. So, again, you know, what you see is the, you know, the growth in more graduate programs, the growth in apprenticeship programs, you know, really starting to try and get young people and then train them yourself and give them the skills that you think are are valuable for them, but also valuable uh, for your organization over the next few years. Now, that's quite a costly process. Um, and, and you have to build it into, you know, obviously your, your strategy and your, and your business plans, because, you know, taking someone, I don't know, that's done a, uh, you know, I don't know, a, a sort of a history degree and turn them into a computer program is going to take a, a bit of time and it's going to cost a bit of money. The point I think is, is that many organizations have historically not done that investment at the front end. And they've basically gone for a poaching approach, which is, I tell you what, I'm not going to invest at the front and I'm just going to pay a premium and try and attract people to my organization. And the problem you have is if, if that's the, the game, what you then get is you don't get any more people coming into the to the system. Uh, the system gets constrained. And also that happens is the price goes up because one of the ways in which you attract people is you pay them a 20 percent premium on what the competitor does. And that's a zero sum game for industry. So one of the things you know, that clearly you know, most economies are trying to do is how do we bridge that gap between education and training? How do we think about our labor market with a view to five or 10 years in the distance? How do we then start to think about the skills agenda and how we develop people? So in the UK, there's been a lot of work that this government has done around thinking about further education and repositioning it what we actually, you know, how we incentivize people to study the right things at university. And, and, and there's certainly uh, that's that has a big role to play. But secondly, employers are going to have to accept that in this environment where there are shortages, you have to invest and you have to grow your own as well as, you know, try and attract people from the alternative. So I think a lot of it's about the development agenda. But the other thing is it's about not just training at the beginning of credit, it's the retraining stuff. You know, so I think people are having more careers and, you know, I don't know, I started in computer software. I'm now at a digital marketing. I'm now going to end up doing something on, I don't know, online training, you know, yeah, but, um, you know, and the skills develop. So the issue for me is, uh, again, the, how we think about careers and jobs. You know, I think we think about things quite linear uh, mm-hmm. over a longish period of time. And I think I saw something the other day that said, you know, most people can have 60 to 80 different gigs or work jobs within their lifetime. So you think about the skill requirements of getting people to getting ready for that. But it's also got to be driven by the individual. And I think that one of the things that we see about young people is they really do get this. They own their skills. They know that sometimes they need to take jobs as an internal because they need the skills in the labor market. And they will move sideways and they'll take creative jobs and they do side hustles and go off and work for a gig company because what it will do is give me skills. And if I've got that, I know how valuable I am in the labour market. So I think one of the things you're starting to see is the candidate or the the individual owning their career and really starting to think about what skills they need to acquire to get, uh, you know, to fulfil the opportunities that are available. So I think there's a lot of things at play, but I think the fundamental is, Government and and business trying to work it hand in hand and organizations really trying to think about their you know their development agenda for at the the front of of people's careers, but then the whole retraining and reskilling thing. A bit like us with the engineers. You know, how do I get engineers that have got, you know, been brilliant at doing combustion engines and all of that? And now all of a sudden we haven't got any combustion engines, a bit of a change, you know, and all of a sudden I'm dealing with batteries and and I'm now dealing with sort of, you know, I'm a much more of an electrical engineer. And actually, I need to think and we're going, well, we've got to put, you know, we've got to put solar power and wind power up. And I've got no experts in that. So I've got a skill and a talent requirement about how do I find people from energy companies to come and work for us so that we can put the infrastructure in. So because, you know, you've got 56 depots around the country and I've got to put the infrastructure in as well as buy the vehicles. The vehicles cost me 100 million a year extra for that, So a billion across the next 10 years. And thought the labor's the constraint, mm. not the money. The money's easy to get, one well, not easy, but you know the money is easier than the skills because it's there or it's not, and you can spend
0: it. But anyhow, so is that You've enough? Got, on <laughs> uh, Rob, listening live, is you know backing up, saying teach them the skills you need, right? And and I totally get that, and you mentioned some of the programs, but can you walk me through how it plays out in real life when you have a department manager and she's looking to hire? You know, she wants. She has a skill need of X, and as you probably agree, hopefully agree with me, most managers are addicted to hiring, right? It's the kind of quick quick solution we're programmed to go hire somebody. So, how do you you know if you're building these resources? Because obviously you're managing many functions in, in the people role, right? You've got learning and development, you've got talent acquisition, you've got talent development, other other different departments. How do you actually build a structure where the well, skills yeah. you're trying to build internally actually get considered or put forward for those roles equally to an external yeah, um, how does it play out in real life on scale there? Well, I think there's a couple of things.
1: Is one of the things that organisations are really rubbish at, actually, in my experience, is any kind of planning around this. So, you know, you know, one of the things we've had to do is build, you know, create some sort of workforce. So we've got, we've got two, workforce planning, which is, you know, what happens when the customers come back on the bus? What routes do we put on? How many drivers do we need? You know, very, very number-driven. But then you start to go, well, you know, uh, renewables, we go digital. Those are skills we want. Like, right? let's articulate those skills and, and let's put some numbers on those, and and let's look at that three to four years out, because then I can do the development stuff. If you're doing it real time, and I'm a a manager, and I'm going, look, I need six of these. When do you need them? Well, a month would be great. Well, I'm not going to develop them in a month, am I? So you you, you know what you've got is a short term reaction to shortages that you you need to be able to respond to. But the real issue is, have you got any kind of planning process around your people that enables you to predict requirements so that you can then put in place the training and development and the investment? So, you know, that's one of the things that HR, I think, is pretty poor at in most organisations. And you really need to to be good at that if you're focusing in any areas where you've got shortages, you know, labour, skill and talent. So hence why the definition is important why you then need to do some planning and then you need to take, you know, plans to put things in place.
0: Listener a question for you, Kevin. Uh, back to one of your comments earlier about retaining talent uh, from Jonathan Knowles on LinkedIn. How do you define your purpose in a way and it's specific to your organization that bridges the difference between uh, your legacy business and the future business? Because you mentioned, obviously, the kind of green environmental, kind yeah. of focus, which probably is a contradiction in some, some ways to the legacy business. I mean,
1: um, I mean, we went through a process, you know, and it's not easy. And, and, and the first thing is it was, you know, we use design thinking as the backdrop. So we went out and engaged quite a large percentage of our workforce uh, and did some stuff about heritage. Tell us what you like about the organization. What's great? You know, what has longevity? Um, and we then started to give them you know, examples of the sorts of things that we think we're going to be doing in five or ten years. So our strategy is quite simple. It's recover bus, better bus, bigger bus, beyond the bus, right? Okay, so we, we sort of got a strategy, and we can articulate some of that stuff. Um, so it's a really engaging process, loads of surveys, loads of work, and and we articulated stuff, and we did it in real time with our leadership population through a number of events and And we've ended up with something that we think, you know, stands, stand the test of time. And I think it resonates and it's your journey is our everything. Right. So what that does is it it does a couple of things. It shows how more people and customer centric we need to become as an organization because it puts those experiences at the center both the customer experience and the employee experience. But it also talks about journey. Now, journey, you know, it's a bit of a cliche. It's a funny word, but. Um, you know, journey for me means, you know, the journey someone makes on a bus. So it can be words that way. But it's also a journey of a career or journey of your employment. So, you know, we've created something that we think is quite exciting. And underneath it, we've created our way, which is, you know, four values, uh, which have, have been, again, developed by our people. So not a group of leaders sat in a room coming up with stuff, but, you know, using language which resonates, do the right thing, show we care uh succeed together and bright future you know and underneath it very simple behaviors which are in language that people get so you've got to do that there but what it's really then about is how do you bring it to life for people and how do you demonstrate you're committed to it and it's real and isn't just some stuff that's been written down and and that's the journey one we've clearly not completed it but you've clearly got to be able to articulate a a purpose and and values which will stand the test of time. It has to be something that you, you know, you view will in five years' time. We won't be rewriting it. We will most probably be using the same stuff because it takes that long to to, to change a culture and mindset and behaviour. You know, I always think you know that example about folding your arms. You know, you fold your arms. Say fold your arms. Everyone folds their arms. You know, I go right. Fold your arms the other way. Mm, can't really do it. And they always say it takes about 40 or 50 times to fold your arms the other way before it becomes a learned behavior. So that's what you're dealing with in organizations. You know, you're dealing with that learnt behavior, which is quite ingrained. And you have to be able to do the education, do the training, um, but show that you use your purpose and your values when you're making the strategic decisions, when you're making strategic hires. You need to get people to see that it's real and it's meaningful when you use it as a backdrop. So, you know, we had a AGM recently and there were some people complaining that we didn't do some customers who were shareholders complaining we didn't do that. Do the right thing, you know, give them the money on the day, apologize profusely, you know, and bring them back and get them to tell us what we should be doing differently. You know, it's and that wouldn't have happened historically. We're a bus company, it was very top-down, asset driven command and control hierarchy, you know? So um, hopefully that's given you some idea, I mean, again, it's another one I can talk uh, talk about for a long time. But I mean, the point is, is create something which is fit for purpose, that will stand the test of time, take your heritage with you, but take it into your new environment and involve your people in it because the
0: process itself is hugely important. Feedback from Jonathan, great answer. Talks to the interests of both customers and employees and creates the expectation of a specific experience. Kevin, I want to move it on to the third element in our opening um, uh, title today, which is the talent piece. And we left it to last, because perhaps it's the most complicated or at least least understood. And maybe I'm going to start not with an article, but maybe a proposal to you, Kevin. Because when I think about talent as compared to labor and skills, I kind of lean towards what have been traditionally been called core skills uh, or sorry soft skills i mm-hmm. prefer to call them core skills which are those kind of skills around leadership yes it's one of them but communication creativity the areas that aren't skill in the traditional sense they're not accounting it's not teaching you marketing it's not teaching you to be an engineer it's a lot of the people interaction skills how do you motivate others lead create come up with ideas inspire and to me When I think of those three things, when you're going through them at the start of the show, immediately, I was like, to me, that's the core skills. Like, Talk to me about what is your definition of that talent piece and what defines it as different to the labor and skill piece?
1: Well, I think I think the point is, as I made earlier on, Johnny, is it's really much more difficult to articulate it. Um, But that doesn't mean you shouldn't try and you shouldn't be clear, you know, so. You know, the skills, I think, are quite easy. We need, you know, this many engineers, this many, you know, software people. We need that. Fine. But if you're really going to have a great organization, which is going to add value, the creativity and the innovation and how we do product development, how we listen to customers and all of that, yeah, I agree with you, is, is part of it. So what you have to be able to do, I think, is to be able to, uh, to get a handle on that and and define, and, and what I mean by that is define uh, what and how it's deployed. So, you know, when we look at our leadership um, talent, we're very clear that, you know, it's not the skills and the hard stuff, it's the soft stuff um, and we've got development programs and leadership programs in place to encourage that. We have to think about the people that progress in our organization and how do we, I mean, one of the things, right? I will tell you, this is one of this is a big one for me. So let's go back to recruitment of talent, right? I'm, I'm leaping off into a slightly uh, tangent. Um, we know interviews don't work, right? And if I go to most organisations, how do you hire talent? They go, well, we interview people. I go, great, fantastic. You know, it's slightly better than random. If it's a one to one interview with a line manager, and I have to listen to all the same nonsense that many other people have to, you know, I'm, I'm gifted at this. I can understand it which is no, it just just doesn't work. So the things that you have to do, multiple eyes on a candidate, you have to test them with activity that's closer to the job, the study after study that shows that. And so if you're hunting for talent, you know, two things. One is the experience for them has got to be great. They've got to be able to ask you questions. But the more that you explore these skills by creating tests that they need to do that demonstrate that you're taking that seriously and they interact with lots of different managers around that, I think you're you're warming them up that this isn't just, you know, stuff we talk about. This is stuff we take seriously. And this is how we develop people to make them more rounded leaders with the ability. And I mean, the thing I also talk about a lot with um, around leadership development is we don't talk about teams. You know, for me, organizations are teams, right? They're just groups of people brought together to complete tasks. And. And where do we, in our development of leaders, talk about what does great team look like? How do you balance a team? How do you get complementary skills? How do you get them inspired and collective and working together? How do you get a team to work when they're working hybrid or remotely, or uh, you know? And, and that's you know. So that for me, those are the sorts of things. The soft skills are the stuff that you need to develop and articulate what's important to you, so that you can assess, judge, and make decisions about who's got it, who hasn't, who we develop, who we promote, who we don't, who we hire, who we don't. So I think what I'm really saying is you've got to articulate that competency framework around leadership. And that's what I'm doing at the moment. We're doing a big restructure. I'm hiring, you know, six new NDs, and I've got a 22-point competency profile, and three or four of them are about skill, and the rest is all about the stuff we just talked about
0: because that's what is going to make the difference. I've heard you use a great example of plane crash. Might be a bit more of it, but
1: talk to me about the plane crash analogy. Well, it's it's a, it's it's just something I use in workshops with leadership teams when they're talking about talent, right? So I say to them, look, most organisation we've got a pretty good handle on our top. It doesn't matter if it's 200, 300 or five hundred. Yeah? But you, you you use this scenario. You go, look, they're all on a plane. They're all going off to a conference. The two or three planes crash, all wiped out, all dead. Now you go. You've got a choice of bringing, of picking twenty people from that five hundred to restart your organization. Who would you pick and why? Now you can do this over a couple of hours with a leadership team. And the thing that astounds me—I've never done this, and I've done it fifty times with different leadership teams—that never have all the people that they've selected been identified as talent and critical uh, people within the organization. Uh, because there's often people that are overlooked. It's people that have got great experience of the clients, or it might be a technical expert, because when you're trying to look at it, it goes to that thing about teams. I need a complementary set of skills. I need people that can work well together. They've got to be able to solve problems as a team. They've got to be able to move up pace. They've got to be able to solve problems. And, And it gets you into a conversation about what you're really looking at. And it get, helps you really start to articulate what you mean by talent. Because I think what we tend to do is we go technical skills quite often, and then we do leadership. And leadership is quite often sort of very, still quite hierarchical, whereas what you find when you do this, there'll be somebody in, I don't know, marketing somewhere, in finance, who have been doing a great job for five years, but they've got a particular skill or attributes that has been overlooked and all of a sudden they get thrown up because I take George And actually you do it with groups, you know, so if you're taking, a, you know, perhaps you have, I don't know, 50 leaders and you break them into five teams, you ask them to do the same exercise and then you go, isn't that strange that the same names keep appearing, right? And actually the same names keep appearing and how many are on our high, our, our our leadership development, or well, none of it. That's strange, isn't it? And on our talent profile, where, how many of you? Well, yeah, okay, well, we've got a couple, but do you know what I mean? So it really starts to get you into the the, 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 the heart of what we mean by
0: talent. Love the exercise. Kevin, uh, I can't believe we're out of time already. We, know we, we started later on the live broadcast than normal, um, so we're coming up to the 45-minute the mark, and uh, I could – continue this chat for another 45 minutes in fact probably four to five hours and we have done in the past many times over lunch drinks and dinner uh kevin as we wrap i was wondering if you could think about what would be the piece of advice you'd leave our audience with for our shortlist here today whether it's something that you've garnered through your own career and experience or something that has been handed to you by somebody else and you said that stuck with me and that's been really helpful share that piece of advice with us if you don't mind
1: yeah, I think it I think I would say challenge your assumptions and challenge what you've done historically. I think organizations get into patterns of behavior. And I think this stuff is moving really fast around organizations. The environment's very volatile. Labor markets are really dynamic. Most organizations are experiencing this. And what it means is you need to change up pace. So you've got to try stuff, you know, fail fast take do you know make experiments try stuff learn from it iterate go again so I think the way that we manage and think about talent and recruitment has got to be a much more dynamic creative process rather than this is the way we hire and this is our you know and it's been the same for five years so I think my challenge to people is you know hopefully take some of the stuff I've been ranting on about for the last 45 minutes and and try a few things, you know, try and get a bit more agile, get more responsive, try and think about different parts of the labor market and different offerings to attract people from it to your organization. But, you know, what's worked in the past isn't gonna work in the future and you've gotta be much more thoughtful about this stuff.
0: Kevin, it's been fascinating hearing your journey, what First Plus is doing, what your team is doing, your thoughts on the labor market, your thoughts on the skill market and the talent market. I love to have you back. Let's uh let's do that again soon. Let's not make it another 108 episodes before we do so. <laughs> Kevin, thanks for joining Loved. us. Been
1: great, mate. Loved it.
0: And thank you for joining us as well and listening to today's show. We're gonna be back next week with a fantastic episode from the archives featuring our good friend John Basilica, who's gonna be talking about the holistic role of TA leaders. So whether you're going for your walk, your run, you're taking a break from work, having a lunch, listening to the podcast, or joining us live bookmark that and we'll drop that episode a lot into your podcast app come Wednesday evening next week because it'll be my birthday. So um, no live show next week because I'll be taking a little break with the family uh, at the regular slot. But do join us to hear our great friend, John Lasadiga, give some insight from uh, his experience on the role of talent acquisition leaders and what that holistic role really is. We hope to join you then. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening.